Good evening. Oh man, I'm really excited about tonight. The uh, yeah, just have a lot of energy. I think the Lord. Uh, I just want to pray that the Lord would just let it rain tonight. I'm gonna I'm gonna give a talk about the Holy Spirit uh, tomorrow. I just want to talk about God's love and in creation and redemption. Do you feel like your hearts are are ready to receive? That's not good. Oh boy, we're in trouble. I just wasted four conferences. You know, we should be ready to receive now. You know, it's like we've renounced. We want to live in the truth, work through some forgiveness. This, it's not a one and done thing, right? This is a way of life for us to, to renounce lies and live in the truth. I was renouncing lies this afternoon, right? The devil trying to come at me with different things. So it's a way of life, but we should be more, we should be opened up now. You should, I'm, you know, you should be opened up now to, uh, to receiving the love of God, maybe maybe in a different way than you have before. So we're going to sing. We have, it's such a gift to have Jesus in the Eucharist for, for the conference. I always hesitate a little to, to speak in front of the Lord, right? I always want to tone down, but this is what the Lord's asking. So why don't you stand up, and we're going to sing. And uh, we're going to sing Amazing Grace, right? This is what we want to do. And... Uh, Praise is the great unused weapon of the Christian. I grew up in the charismatic renewal, so it's very, very uh, common for and normal for me to just praise God and worship God, you know? I'll be walking across the parking lot just praising the Lord with my hands up. People are like, there's that crazy priest. I'm like, it's just me, you know? So it's the great unused weapon of the Christian. That's what the saints say. When we praise God, what do we do? We take our eyes off of ourselves and put our eyes on God. I don't know about you guys, but I'm tired of looking at myself. You're like, we're tired of looking at you too, Father Joe. You know? <laughs> I'm tired of looking at myself. Aren't you tired of thinking about yourself? Sin is what's called curvatus in se. It's us turned in on ourselves. What are we called to be? Outward looking. Great outward looking souls, right? I remember describing to my spiritual director one time, I said, I'm so nervous when I walk into rooms when there's a lot of people. I'm always thinking about what other people are thinking of me. He said, why don't you start thinking about how other people are doing? I was like, that's a novel idea. <laughs> but that's what praise does. It takes our eyes off of ourselves and puts, puts them on God. That's why we want to sing and praise God and worship him. So let's sing, okay? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now. I see. We're going to sing the first verse again, right? And I want you to sing it, you know? Not that you weren't singing it that time. But I want you to sing it with your hearts as a prayer. You sing it to Jesus. He's right here. You tell Jesus what he's done for you. Tell Jesus what he's doing for you, okay? Let's sing. Amazing grace,
So Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you. We thank you for what you, you have done in our lives. We thank you for what you're doing on this retreat. We thank you for what you will do. We just praise you, Lord. We worship you. and We ask you tonight for a great gift of your joy. Lord, fill us with your joy tonight and your peace. Grant us the grace to just receive in a new way your great love for us, Lord Jesus. Just trust that, trust that you're delighting in us. I just, um, just have the image of Jesus in my mind with a great smile, with a great smile. You remember when your kids or your nieces or nephews or grandchildren or uh, would perform for you and uh, what delight you would take in that. And I just see Jesus just taking such delight in you with just a great smile on his face. Like, yes, yep, this is it. So Lord, we thank you. Thank you that we are the delight of your heart and we claim that. We make all these prayers through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We want to be be seated. Sorry. <laughs> You're standing for the whole conference. We want to be seen, right? It's beautiful. My nieces and nephews. I have eight nieces and nephews. And uh, I'm sure I told, told this before. I tell everywhere I go. But uh, they didn't know what to, call, what, what to call me when I was ordained a priest. They were all, you know, Every, they heard everybody call me Father, Father Joe, Father Joe, Father Joe. And so this was a great dilemma of their young lives. What are we going to call our Uncle Joe? And of course they could call me Uncle, but they worked on it for a long time. And they came up with what they think was the greatest thing in the world. It's a combination of father and uncle, so they call me Frunkle, you know? <laughs> Frunkle Joe all the time. They want to be seen. They want to be seen, right? You want to be seen. Remember James and John, right? Grant that we sit at your right and your left, Lord, in your glory. Was that just egomania? No, it was revealing something so much deeper. We want to be seen. We want to be known. We want to be loved. My little nieces and nephews come up, the girls, right? They all come up. I'm sitting on a couch over Thanksgiving, right? And they come up and they, Uncle Joe, Frunkle Joe, Frunkle Joe, watch me. You know, one does a cartwheel. I said, that's so good, honey. That's so good. She gives him a big hug. And then the next one comes up, a little younger. Frunkle Joe, Frunkle Joe, watch me. Okay, I'll watch you, honey. What do you do? You know, she spins around, you know. Then the littlest one comes up to me, Franco Joe, Franco Joe, watch me. And I watch her and she just, <laughs> she just stands there, you know? And what do I do? I grab her and I hug her and I kiss her and I let so good. You've done so good, honey. We want to be seen. He sees you with great delight and great joy, with a big smile on his face, right? So I, uh, I'm, I'm, I felt moved to share my story with you, and I know I've shared a lot of my life with you, but just as a way to enter into my experience of God's love so that we can transition to me talking about how much God loves you and, and creation and redemption. And then we're going to close with me, uh, with Jesus, me holding the Lord, just blessing you and uh, just sealing you in the power of his love. So I, I grew up, like I told you, the youngest of five in, in a town called Bethel Park, which is just south of Pittsburgh. I have two older brothers and two older sisters. And um, just a, a wonderful, wonderful Catholic family growing up. Mass, mass was not an option for me if you wanted to live past the age of 10 years old. You went, you went to Mass on Sunday. You know, my, I never, never crossed my mind. 
you know, that I had an option going to Mass, right? Um, but I got I got I did not know my faith growing up, you know? I didn't know my faith. And, and I'm sure my parents tried to teach me and other people tried to teach me, and I didn't really know my faith. And uh, here's something really important. You can't love what you don't know. You can't love what you don't know. As Catholics, we're very good about the what, not so good with the why, right? We know what to do, right? We know we come to Mass. And when we come to Mass, we dip our hand in holy water. We make the sign of the cross. We genuflect before the Eucharist. We sit in the pew. We know to sit. We know to stand. We know when to kneel. We know the responses. We know the what, but so often we don't know the why. It's the why that makes the what so beautiful. Amen? I told you I was all fired up. I'm all fired up tonight, right? It's the why of Catholicism that makes the what so beautiful. The why informs the what. But if you don't know the why, the what becomes empty, meaningless ritual. And eventually you stop going, right? Eventually you stop going. That's what happens to a lot of our kids. They don't know the why behind the what. And so the what becomes empty, meaningless ritual. What am I doing? I'm not doing that anymore, right? It's the why behind the what that's so beautiful. I used to be so bored at Mass. Has anybody ever been bored at Mass? Oh, come on, ladies. Oh, thank you. It's a bunch of Mother Teresa's in here or something. Oh, not me, Father John. Never. Oh, I've never. You can, can you imagine me as a little kid, how ADD I was? Some people are ADD. I was like A-D-D-D-D-D-D-D. I was bouncing. I used to love Palm Sunday. So they give you those swords, the palms to play with. Hit my brothers and sisters with that, right? I used to, I used to come to my, I had no idea why I was there. And the readings, was, the readings are tough. How do we expect our people to understand the readings without explaining them well? You imagine kids coming. Pharaoh said to Nehemiah, and Nehemiah said to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah, and Nehemiah, and Roabom, and this bomb, and that bomb, and was, who's doing what? And then the priest would start preaching. And priest would start, you know, he was falling over. I don't know. You know, the lady next to me would be snoring. I'd be like, lady, wake up. You know, God's going to smite you, you know. So I grew up go practicing my faith, but never really knowing my faith deeply. And then as I've shared with you so much, my life was very much dominated by fear and anxiety. And uh, I, I think if I had to self-diagnose myself, something called affirmation deprivation disorder. There's a... Uh, Thomistic, which means he follows St. Thomas, psychologist named Dr. Conrad Bars, B-A-A-R-S. I'm a huge fan of his. And he came up with something called affirmation deprivation disorder. The, the essence of love, like what is love? St. Thomas Aquinas says it's to will the good of the other as other. The essence of love is the affirmation of the existence of the other. That's what it means to love another. It's to affirm their existence. That's why you see the opposite of that is to negate another's existence. That's called sarcasm. Why is sarcasm so biting? Why does it hurt so bad? Because there's something in sarcasm that's saying to us, like, you know, you're talking about something like, yeah, that's a good idea. And it just, oh, you know, sarcasm comes from the word sarks, which in Greek means flesh and chasm means to tear. Sarcasm means to tear the flesh. Why does it hurt so bad? Because it's the opposite of affirming 
the existence of the other. Imagine if we affirmed one another. Not, not our bad actions. I'm not saying we say everything we do is okay. But if I affirmed your existence is good, why would I do that? Because your existence is good. How do I know that? Because God said it is. It's good that you exist. He looked at all he had made. And he found it good. And then he looked at you. Did he just find you good? No, he found you. Say it. Very good. He looked at all he had made. He found it good. But then he looked at you and he found you. Very good. Very good. I want to affirm you because God affirmed you, right? I didn't receive that affirmation of the existence of my life, right? I was, I was taught that I was good because. Joe, you're good because, right? One of my buddies, not one of my buddies, but a, an author I love, his name Peter Kreeft. His son came to him one day and he said, Dad, why do you love me? Amazing. He was a little kid. I think he was five years old at the time. He said, Dad, why do you love me? And Peter Kreeft, a famous author, he said, oh, son, you're, I love you because you're such a good son to your mother. And he saw his son kind of shoulders sink. He said, oh, no, son, I, and I love you because you're, you're such a good brother to your sister. His shoulders sunk a little bit more. And he said, I love you because you're always so obedient to me. And his son started to get real sad. And finally realized, oh, my gosh. Son, I love all those things about you, but I love you just because you're mine. And his son stuck out his chest. That's what we need. You're not loved because you're here. You love because you're his. Isn't that great? That takes all the pressure off. You're not loved because you're here. You love because you're his, right? We love to be seen and affirmed. The little girl, my parish, you know, used to be a town called Bridgeville, Sophia. She just loved me, right? Little Sophia, pigtails, cute as they could be. Every mass after mass, I'd stand and greet the people, right? Sophia would run out of her pew, run down the aisle, and give me a big hug. Sophia, just give me a big hug. She was so cute. I saw her in the morning for mass, and then I saw her later in the day. It, she was at her school. There was a school function. And I turned the corner and Sophia was there. And she looked at me. She's like probably four at this time. Looked at me and her eyes grew so wide. And she said, two times in one day. <laughs> like that. I thought, oh, that's the existence, right? The affirmation of my existence. That's what God is saying. Hey. So he looks at you. It's so beautiful, right? So I didn't receive that. When you don't receive that, you begin to build your identity on what you do and what you have rather than who you are. That's where we get into danger. I'm the cool priest. I'm the funny priest. I'm the this, I'm the that, I'm the, you know? I do this, I do that. I got the money, I got the this, I got the, you know? We start building our lives on what we do and what we have rather than on who we are, right? Anytime you build your identity, on what you have or what you do or what your kids do. We can do that, can't we? <laughs> My mom has, you know, eight grandchildren. The neighbor next door has seven grandchildren. 
My mom's like, yeah, <laughs> I got you by one, right? It's like we build our these goofy identities, right? You know what we do when we do that? We begin to compare and compete. Because we're insecure. Comparison comes from insecurity and a lack of gratitude. If you struggle with jealousy or envy, that's where it comes from. It comes from insecurity, right? Somebody said to me the other day, coming out of Mass, you know, uh, oh, Father Joe, that homily. That homily. And I thought, lay it on me. Tell me how amazing I am. <laughs> Tell me that homily changed your life. And they were like, that homily that Father Bob down the street gave the other day. <laughs> it was just... And I said, oh, that's, that's great. I, I hope you never come back here for church. <laughs> it's just right. I got sad. Why? But another's good. That's the sin of envy. We've all felt it, the pang of envy, right? It's my insecurity. Right? That's where envy and jealousy come from. When we build our lives on something, I am loved beyond my greatest imagining. And then when they talk about how great Father Bob is, I go, that's so wonderful. Thank, I'm so grateful he touched your life like that. I'm not there yet, right? <laughs> I still want to be the best, right? So that's what I did. I performed. Okay. I always think the Gospels are impractical. Build your life on sand or you build your life on rock. My life was built on sand. I was, sports was my sand, right? I was good at everything, football and baseball and basketball. Like I told you, I played football in college. And when I got up into college, I wasn't the starting, I was a quarterback. I wasn't the starting quarterback in college, like I wasn't in high school. I thought, this is it. I had the cheerleader girlfriend. I had it all. I was like, Western Pennsylvania, it's like California. High school football is a big deal. Thousands of people come to the game. So I thought, I, when I was a star quarterback in high school, I thought, this is it. I built my whole life, my whole identity on being a good football player. I know it sounds goofy, but that's what I did. That's what I did. And when I got to college, I wasn't the first string. And so that sand fell right. Nobody knew who I was. Nobody cared who I was. The sand just fell right out from under me. That's what Jesus says. That's what Jesus says. It'll fall out right from under you. It did. It collapsed. And when it collapsed, then I collapsed. I remember thinking to myself, waking up one time or going to bed one time after like the biggest party and being so alone. So there's nothing lonelier after the music stops, right? Like, so alone. So instead of turning to God, right, I turned to everything I told you guys about, all the partying and the drinking and the drugs and the everything else, trying to fill my life. The prodigal son, right, goes out to the Koromakra, goes out to the far distant country. Life's there. Life's here with Jesus. Life's here. Can you imagine all these sisters? Life's here. It's here. You see the joy in these sisters' faces. We think life's in Hollywood. I mean, I know you guys don't, but can you imagine? Here, this is where life is. A Carmelite monastery. Who would think? That's God's way. That's God's way. Just flip it all. Where is true joy found? Right here. In this Carmelite monastery. That's why I love to come every year. I'm going to go into this joy, right? So I didn't do that. I didn't turn to God. I turned to everything but God. 
and I found myself very empty. This is what sin says. It's going to sound familiar to you. Come to me, you who labor and are heavy burdened. I will give you rest. That's what Jesus says. And I assure you, that's what sin says. Because sin, the devil, can only imitate God. So Jesus is standing here, literally here tonight, with his arms wide open saying, come to me, you who labor and are heavy burden, and I will give you rest. And sin is right next door saying, no, 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 don't believe him. Don't believe, he won't give you rest. He hasn't given you rest before. He's not going to give you rest now. Come to me. Come to me. Come to the jealousy. Come to the gossip. Come to the envy. Come to the anger. Come to the porn. Come to the this. Come to the, come on, come on this way. I'll, I'll, I'll satisfy you. And when I was in college, I was like, okay, you know. It didn't satisfy. It only made me emptier, sadder. Sin makes us sad. It promises something it can't deliver. It promises us rest. It promises us joy, right? That's why we do it. That's why we gossip and we slander and we tear each other down. This will make me feel good. <laughs> and it never does. We wind up so empty. A few things happened that changed my life. I was in a bad place, spiraling downward and downward and down. I remember being totally intoxicated, driving my car 80 miles an hour down a road after being at a bar, wondering if I should just jerk it into a wheel, into a, in a telephone pole. So I, I say that not to shock you, but to say uh, maybe you have kids that are really far away. Maybe they'll end up priests. <laughs> it's like nobody's ever lost. Nobody's too far from the reach and the mercy of God. Don't, my mom and dad didn't give up. They got on their knees and they prayed rosaries. That's what they did. They didn't give up on me. They just, and then they didn't despair and they didn't beat my ear about Jesus all the time. You know? They didn't. They just prayed. Talk to Jesus more about your kids than your kids about Jesus, okay? Talk to Jesus more about your children than you do your children about Jesus. Way more. Like, make that like a thousand to one ratio, talking to Jesus. Only talk to your kids about God. I think if the door opens up, well, we can beat them to death, right? Beat them to death with Jesus. <laughs> My life changed a few, a few ways. The first way is I became the starting quarterback in football, and that seems like a small thing, you know. I'll share the story maybe with you tomorrow, but... I went from the fifth-string quarterback to the first-string quarterback. And so I had to grow up really quickly. I had to take responsibility for my life. And I couldn't go out and party and do all those other things so much. I had to grow up a little bit. And uh, the next thing happened was I met this girl. And when I saw this girl, I was like, mm. Sorry, that was a little flashback right there. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> this girl, she was different than all the other girls that I met. Because she was self-possessed. You know what it means to be self To be in possession of yourself. To know who you are. Nothing more attractive than a woman who knows who she is. Nothing more attractive than that. That's why these sisters are so attractive. So beautiful. When you know who you are and you're living in the truth of your identity and your dignity, whew, and I wasn't used to that. I was used to insecure girls. 
I was used to girls who were easily manipulatable. So when I saw her, I was like, whoa, what is that? So I started to try and date her. And she was like, Joe, if you want to date me, you can't be a chump. And I was like, oh, man, bummer. <laughs> you know? So I had to grow up. She raised me up. Just by, she wasn't preachy. She didn't say like, oh, you're drinking Java. You know, it all starts with Jay, Jesus. No, like, she just was herself. Just herself. She raised me up. That's what we're supposed to do. God made us male and female, right? To do what? Ladies, if you live out the truth and the dignity of your femininity, raise us men up. And we're called to live out the truth and the dignity of our masculinity. We're meant to raise you up. When we're raising one another up, we meet in the apex. And what do we do? Radiate God's love to everybody. That's what we're supposed to do. But what are we doing now? We're tearing each other down. Tearing each other down. We're meeting in the gutter and nobody's radiating God's love to anyone. And to raise each That's what she did for me. So the second thing that really happened that began to change my life. And I had some great friends around me. Whenever parents asked me to pray for their children, I always prayed that they would have great friends because my friends saved my life. And I remember praying this after I began to have a conversion. And uh, I remember praying to God, God, and I didn't even know what this meant at the time. I said, give me good Catholic fellowship. I didn't know what fellowship, and I probably read it on like some cheesy Christian poster or something. And I was in adoration one time. And I got up from adoration, I started walk, walking out, and a woman, a girl, tapped me on the shoulder. And I turned around, she said, excuse me, are you interested in some good Catholic fellowship? You know? I said, I don't know what that is, but yes, I am. You know? Saved my life. C.S. Lewis said, if you want to know a person's friends, if you want to know a person's character, look at their friends. If you want to know a person's... Surround yourself with good friends. Surround yourself with good friends. And be a good friend. I remember I was praying to Jesus, good friends, give me good friends, Lord. The Lord said, Joe, I've given you great friends. Be a good friend. Said, oh, okay. Be a good friend. God loves good, holy friendships. Look at all the friendships in Scripture. John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, Francis and Claire, David and Jonathan. Be a good friend. God bless you. Be a good friend. The last thing that happened was I went home over Christmas break. I promise we'll get to you. Sorry, I'm having a lot of fun telling my story. I don't tell it very often. Like every other week, basically. <laughs> I went home over Christmas break, and Christmas, you know, it's like three weeks long when you're in college and you're bored after 10 minutes, you know. It's a good idea, parents. Leave books around your house. I'm certain that's what my parents did. My dad left a book uh, by this author, I'm sure you wouldn't know him, Scott Hahn, and um, it's called The Lamb's Supper, you know. And I was so bored, I picked the book up, and I literally was not even like reading anything at that time. I could probably barely read. And I opened the book, and the first line of the book said something like this. For Catholics, there's nothing that we do more, but that we understand less than the Mass. I thought, ding, ding, ding. Like, that's it. At that, I was 22 years old at that time. I thought, I've been going to Mass for 22 years of my life. I have no idea what's going on at Mass. I don't know why I'm there. I don't know what. I started reading this book. It just blew me away. It explained the why behind the what of Mass. 
And what touched me wasn't just the why behind the what of Mass, but the why behind the why of the what of Mass. That is, the love behind the why. My heart knew it. As a 22-year-old football player, I sat on that couch and I cried. And I thought, this is it. Rather, he is it. It was an Augustine moment. God, you've made us for yourself. My heart is restless until it rests in you. It was a moment, the first thing I realized was this God is real. He's not just some idea. He's not just some thing out there. And he loves me. I went back to college and I started to pray. I mean, pray, pray. Not just pray, but pray, pray. Talking to God. Listening to God. God started to speak to my heart. Not to, He doesn't speak so much to our big floppy. Almost never. Speaks to the heart. Gently, quietly, speaks in his presence. God said to me after some weeks and months of prayer, Joe, come and follow me as a priest. And I was like, no. <laughs> I was dating this girl. It had been two and a half years, you know. I was addicted to her. She was addicted to me. Some love there, you know. <laughs> Mostly it was just mutual use. That's what happens with our kids, right? Start using each other. Mistake that for love, get married, and then it doesn't work out in three months. And uh, this was hard. It was hard. I tried to ignore him, you know? I tried to ignore him. And I went to her. I was very honest with her the whole time. I said, I think God's called me to be a priest. She said, well, ignore him. <laughs> it's a good idea. <laughs> So I tried to ignore him for a while, and he kept calling him, calling him, just putting on my heart, putting on I couldn't. He was drawing me close. He was healing me. You know what it's like to begin to be. I began feeling his healing and his joy and his peace. I'd found it. I had found what my heart longed for. Him, the person of Jesus, real, not just a historical figure a long time ago that said some really good truths that we try and live by now. That's not our Jesus. Buddha did that. Gandhi did that. Dalai Lama, they all done, done that. Jesus is different. Why? Because he's living and well. He is alive. I began to encounter him, the person of Jesus, to know him, to fall in love with him. It's the first time I fell in love. What does it mean to fall in love? I began to experience it. I was delirious. I was intoxicated. It was healing my heart, but I still was attached. Still was attached. So I remember going to see the vocation director. The vocation director is the one you go to if you're discerning the priesthood or religious life. And I went to the vocation director with my girlfriend. <laughs> and I sat down and he said, well, this is the first time a man has ever come to see me with his girlfriend. <laughs> so through a lot of heartache and a lot of hardship, I broke up with her over the phone the night before her CPA exam. You guys are like, everything you've said to this point is a lie. <laughs> and I thought it was for good, you know? But we kept getting back together and breaking up, getting back together. It was so hard, so hard. And uh, I was in Connecticut as a confirmation sponsor. I was flying home, and we hadn't dated for months, and this was a bad idea. I had her pick me up at the airport. We hadn't talked or dated. None of my friends were around. I was desperate. I called her. I was flying home, and something went wrong in my brain, and I said, I'm going to marry this girl. 
So I said, God, thank you for healing my heart. Thank you for showing me that you're real. But, but don't talk to me about the priesthood thing. I'm done. I'm done with it. And I basically did the, blah. <laughs> you know, I got off the plane. She was at the gate. She looked beautiful. I walked up to her. I said, I'm so sorry for everything I put you through. I have something to tell you. She said, I have something to tell you. I said, what? She said, I'm dating someone else. And my heart was just like, oh. You know, I remember collapsing into her arms and crying. And she dropped me off at my apartment. Beautiful sunny day. And, you know, what? <laughs> I walked upstairs. And my buddy's like, dude, you okay? And I was like, yeah, good, good, busy. You know. You guys got that. Good for you. <laughs> it's good, good, busy. I walked upstairs. I collapsed on the floor, cry. couldn't stay down. So I got up, you know, started to walk outside. I must have looked like a mess because I had no shoes on, ripped jeans and a ripped white T-shirt. And I'm crying and tears and snot and everything, walking up the sidewalk. And people are like, there's a zombie. I'm like, it's just me, you know. <laughs> and... Uh, to be honest with God. God, I'm so scared. I said, I'm hurting, Lord. I said, I don't know if I could be ever happy without this girl. But amazing moment. You have a, have a scripture imprinted on your heart? It was a scripture that God just branded on my heart. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know well the plans I have for you. And it was like that. It was, no, I know well the plans I have for you, son. Mm. I said yes to the Lord that day. Yes, Lord, I'll follow you. <laughs> He's like, you'll follow me now that she broke up with you. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> enter the seminary, you know. We enter with baggage. The sisters, they enter with baggage. Priests, we enter with baggage. We're still we're human beings with all that comes with it. So my heart wasn't fully healed, and it's gonna be a lifetime, right? God's making me fit for the kingdom of heaven. That's what he's doing. All my sufferings, my humiliations, my tears, my He's fitting me. He's fitting you for the kingdom of heaven. That's all life is about. Life is a preparation for eternal life. And it goes quick, doesn't it? In a blink of an eye, we're all going to be dead. Isn't that comforting? The 15-year-old, our high schooler is like, oh. <laughs> you got a little more time. And it's like, Fitting us for heaven, purifying us. All my anxieties and fears, they were being healed, but they all came to a head right before my diaconate ordination. I got ordained over in Rome. I lived in Italy for five years. And uh, my mom and dad came over about a week before I was ordained. And a week before I was ordained, all the fears and the lies were all those lies we were announced. They all came. And I didn't know about the renunciations at that time. Now the lies come and I renounce. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that I am a failure. I renounce that lie. 
Because when you preach a lot, you get attacked a lot, right? So I leave a talk, and I, I can hear the evil one saying, you are a failure. Can, Ooh. In the name of Jesus, I renounce that lie. I don't want that anywhere near me. I'm done with that, right? So I didn't know how to do that. So all the fears came, and the lies came with the fear, and I couldn't sleep for days and days. I couldn't sleep, and I couldn't eat. You know I'm nervous if I can't eat. I was dying. And my parents came over. They wanted to go to, um, they're art lovers, so they wanted to go up to Florence, to the Uffizi Gallery. So I took them up to the Florence, to the Uffizi Gallery. And we're walking around the Uffizi Gallery, and my mom and dad are like, this is so beautiful. And I'm like, I'm going to die. <laughs> we went up to a room called the Room of Botticelli. He's a famous Italian artist. There's a painting on the wall. And uh, it's called the Columni of Apella, as I've spoke about it before. And it's a king seated on a throne, very regally. And all the vices are coming up to him. So pride and envy and anger, they're all personified. And lust, lust is a man. And gossip, gossip's a woman. They're all walking up to the king, whispering in his ear. You got to be the boss of your thoughts. My friend Sarah Swafford says that. The battlefield is the mind. The battlefield is the mind. When you listen to, what voices do you listen to? I was listening to the wrong voices. The king was listening to all these voices and he began, the painting, it's so good, it's almost like it's moving. It begins to be dark and crumples over and uh, like that. And then the back is truth. And she's naked. And she's pointing to heaven. When I stood in front of that painting, it was like, Something broke in me. It just. And I heard God the Father say this Joseph, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. What a healing in my heart took place. The deepest wounds we can receive are wounds of our identity. The deepest healing we can receive is healing about our identities. Bishop Barron says this, the most important spiritual truth you can ever hear is God doesn't need you. Remember the first time I heard that, I thought that doesn't, that sounds odd to me. But the point that he makes is, is this, that there's no need in God. That God didn't create because he was bored or, or he, he wanted something to use or wanted something to manipulate or wanted something to do his bidding. There's no need in God by definition. Do you know why that's such terribly, extraordinarily good news? It means that everything that exists, he wanted to be. Which means he wanted you. 
all of creation is coming forth as a sheerly generous act of God's love. He wanted you to exist. You have been loved into existence. Each one of you is the result of a thought of God. Each one of you is loved. Each one of you is willed. Each one of you is necessary. When I was born, my mom and dad prayed for a scripture verse for each one of their children. It's a beautiful thing to do. And the scripture verse that they received for me was Ephesians 2.10, which says, you are God's work of art. And my Aunt Janet drove up from West Virginia. She's a Southern Baptist. And my mom wouldn't tell her if I was a boy or if I was a girl. She stopped at a Bible store and bought a little t-shirt. And she bought blue and thought if it's a girl, she can wear blue. She walked into the hospital room. And my mom held me up to her. My Aunt Janet said, oh, it's a boy. I'm so happy. My Aunt Janet lifted up the shirt, and on the front of the shirt, it said, God's work of art. That's who I am. Funny looking work of art. <laughs> Goofy and foibly and... But I'm his work of art. And so are you. You are God's work of art. And I don't care what anybody's told you. They're wrong. And I don't care what you've believed about yourself. You're wrong. You don't even have a right to name yourself as anything other than that. Because you didn't bring yourself into existence out of nothing. God did. And he's already spoken over you. And said mine. My work of art. And so whenever you demean yourself, belittle yourself and beat yourself up, it hurts him because it's untrue. You are his work of art. Your life is a gift. You know who your life is a gift to? You. You did nothing to earn your existence. Your life is a gift to you. Let's go ahead and close your eyes and bow your heads. We're just gonna profess some things. We've renounced and we've forgiven. Now we wanna profess. So just repeat after me. In the name of Jesus, I believe that I have been loved into existence. In the name of Jesus, I believe that I am a gift. In the name of Jesus, I believe that my life is a gift. In the name of Jesus, I believe that I have been created by love. For love, to live with love. 
in the name of Jesus, I say yes to my existence. In the name of Jesus, I say yes to myself. In the name of Jesus, I accept my life as a gift. Come Holy Spirit, breathe upon your daughters. Just hear Jesus saying to you, you are my work of art. And I have molded you and shaped you. And when my father knit you together in your mother's womb, I delighted in you. When you began your existence, and when you were born, the angels in heaven rejoiced over you and jostled with one another as to who would be your guardian. I love that my Father created you. I love your life on earth. I do, but I can't wait to live life with you forever in heaven. Repeat after me, in the name of Jesus, I accept my life as a gift. In the name of Jesus, I believe that I am God's work of art. I believe that I am God's work of art. I am God's work of art. So you can open up your eyes. It wasn't enough that he just created you, you know. He showed his love for you, showed the depths of his love, right? The scriptures say, by redeeming us. By redeeming us. St. Paul says it this way, that in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to deliver from the law those who are subject to it. John 3.16, you know better, says this way, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's true. But it's also true that God so loved you that he gave his only son. that if you were the only person that needed redeemed, Jesus would have happily died for you. Then nothing would have changed. I don't know if you know the story, I'm sure, of St. Maximilian Colby. I love to think about the life of the man he saved. Franz was his name. 
Max was in prison at Auschwitz concentration camp and one of the prisoners escaped and so the punishment of the Nazis was to choose 10 prisoners and starve them to death in the starvation bunkers. Horrendous. And uh, they called out Franz's number and he cried, please not me, my wife, my children. And the Nazis didn't care. And this little priest, Polish, Father Maximilian Kolbe, stepped forward and said, I'll take his place. And the Nazi commander yelled back, who are you? And Max said, I'm, I'm a Catholic priest. Miraculously, the commander let the other man go and took Maximilian Kolbe. And he went to the starvation bunker with the other nine guys and they had to keep changing out the guards because the guards kept having conversions. <laughs> Max led them in song and prayer until they died one by one. And finally, after three weeks, they came and had to inject Maximilian Kolbe with poison to kill him because he just wouldn't die. Franz, the man whose life he saved, was at his beatification when he became a saint. He was there with his wife and kids. Spent the rest of his life going around telling people what Maximilian had done for him. He died for me. He took my place. I was the one condemned to death and he took my place. Do you see where I'm going? He died for you. He died for me, took my place. I was destined for death. And so were you. And he said, I'll take her place. I will take her place. Imagine you see him walk by you and him walking away to Calvary. He did this for me. He did this for me. You see how it's got to become personal. You're worth dying for. He died for you. He did this for you. Pulled up to my nieces and nephew's house one day in Illinois and little niece came out, tugging on the door. Come on, Uncle Joe, you have to, it's okay, honey. She grabbed my hand, she pulled me inside. It had just been her birthday and she loves flowers. Her dad got her a big bouquet of flowers that was on the table. She looked at the flowers, Uncle Joe, Uncle Joe. And he pointed to my brother-in-law and she looked at me and she said, he did this for me. It's like, every time you see a crucifix, He did this for me. You are so loved. 
that someone took your place who was totally innocent. A lamb led to the slaughter, opening not his mouth. He wouldn't dare open his mouth. I love her too much. I would never turn back. Remember what he said at the Last Supper right before his passion? How I've longed to die for her. How I've longed to take her place. He didn't grow, go to the cross grudgingly for you. The fathers of the church say that it wasn't the nails that held him up. But his love for you. He was thinking of you. saw that the quiet place too is coming out if you I don't know if you saw the first quiet place the movie I thought it was really powerful it's an amazing scene the quiet place is one of these alien movies you know and the aliens like track the human beings when they make noise so they had to make noise and they, they like lay sand down so that they wouldn't make noise the movie center around a family that's they've survived somehow by not making noise. The opening scene is heart-wrenching. The family has gone into a grocery store that's been abandoned to get some different things and they have a few children and the youngest boy is walking out following his parents. He grabs a toy space shuttle. Everybody gets nervous because it looks like he's going to turn it on. And as he's about to turn it on, his dad catches him. And they're using sign language. says, son, too loud. And he keeps walking. And the little girl, this boy's older brother, felt bad. So she gave him the shuttle again. So you know what's coming. They're walking across the bridge. And the little kid turns it on. And he gets taken by the aliens. And the whole movie is about the girl, the older daughter, not believing her father could ever love her because of what she had done. It's a subplot, but it's there. He can't possibly love me. This guilt, this hurt, this pain that she struggles with. Does my father love me? Does my father love me? Towards the end of the movie, the girl and one of her other brothers are in this truck and they've made noise. So the aliens are on top of the truck, slashing the truck. They're gonna kill these kids. And the dad from about 100 yards away is walking towards the truck. He knows he can't fight the aliens off. They're too big, they're too strong, they're too... He can only do one thing. To lure them to himself. It's a powerful scene. The little girl sees her dad now about 15 yards away. And they meet eyes. She knows what he's going to do. So she says, no, Dad. And the father sign languages to her. 
I love you. And I have always loved you. And he stretches out his arms and he cries, ah. And they leave and kill him and the little girl is saved. I want you to hear that tonight. Just close your eyes. Just hear Jesus say to you tonight, would you hear him? Hear him in the depths of your heart just saying to you, oh God, what is your first name? Whatever it is, hear him saying your first name. I love you and I have always loved you. I can't do anything more to show you how much I love you. If, if there was something other than the cross that I could do, something that would prove my love for you more, I would do it. But there's not, so I've done it. I love you and I have always loved you. repeat after me in the name of Jesus I believe that I am loved in the name of Jesus I believe that I am wanted in the name of Jesus I believe that I am redeemed in the name of Jesus I believe that I am worth dying for. Thank you, Jesus, for dying in my place. I believe in your love for me. I believe in your love for me. I believe in your love for me. Jesus, I love you.